When COVID-19 hit, the doors to all independent venues across the country closed and attending live concerts stopped. The independent venues and promoters from every state in the U.S. are banding together to fight for survival. Many of us are at risk of closing our doors forever unless federal assistance is provided. More information is available at SaveOurStages.com. Brought to you by NEVA, a 501c6. You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. What's up, everybody? How are you doing? I am uh, just trying to keep it together, right? Aren't we all? What a time to be alive. But we are here to discuss independent music, right? That's what we do here on the show. And I'm incredibly excited to bring you today's conversation with Dan Sanshaw. He is the, I guess, the head of A&R. That's what you would call him over at Equal Vision Records. I got to know him really well through a uh, professional setting. He was actually trying to sign the band that I uh, that I played in, and uh, you know we got to know each other pretty well through that. But then we also just existed in the same music community for a very long time. You know, as far as like working at record labels and signing bands and stuff like that. And it was uh, it was very interesting because that was a, a learning experience for both of us, which we actually talk a lot about in the interview. And uh, he's just a great guy and very you know pivotally responsible for bringing so many incredible bands to uh, your ear holes. And uh, yeah, I just, I, I w- wanted to have him on. He was reticent at the beginning to be like, I don't know if I want to do podcasts. Like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I, I want the focus to be on me and the bands and, or I mean, <laughs> the focus to be on the bands and not me. That's what I meant to say. But um, yeah, Dan was just a, a great conversation. And uh, yeah, I'll bring it to you in a moment. How are you doing? Are you just holding it together? That's that's what we all can do right now. Just just breathe, take walks, like do what you can to clear your mind of all of the craziness that exists out there. And um, yeah, hold the ones that you love that much closer because it's uh, it's wild out there. You can always email the show 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. And uh, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts because, you know, that's a thing you do and people encourage you to take, you know, it's a defined call to action step, okay? And that is what you should do as an appropriate podcast consumer, (laughs) okay? But uh, yeah, in all honesty and sincerity, I am very excited to bring you this conversation. So here we are with Because we've known each other for so long, I uh, cannot recall when we actually first was like, hey, Ray, here's Dan, Dan, Ray. But I remember, I mean, something that really sticks in my mind is when you and I, uh, you know, along with your wife and your sister-in-law, spent a ton of time together at, I want to say, a skate and surf fest in New Jersey, um, because I think I was there for Century Media. And I just remember, it was like, I loved every single one of you. Like, it was like, oh my gosh, like these are really, really good humans. And like, I've, I've already heard about Dan from just the music industry at large, but it was one of those things where I just felt so um, gravitated towards you. And I think it was because the impression that you left me with was that you were not a person who was like meant to be in the music industry. And I mean that in a very positive way, <laughs> like just in a, you know, like your goal wasn't to be like, oh yeah, I'm like working at a record label. It was like, 
oh yeah, I like music and I'll figure it out. But you know, uh, does that resonate with you at all? Like the idea of like, oh wow, I can't even believe I'm here working at Equal Vision. Uh, I mean, I guess so. I mean, I, you know, my motives, I was never, when I started doing this, I never set out to like climb the ladder or, you know, play that whole game. So I think that is accurate. It's like, and that, yeah, that must've been either bamboozle or skate and surf. And we probably got exposed to asbestos in those paint chips in the wall. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, the convention yep. hall. Yep. But I remember that. That's funny. Yeah. And I just, like I said, I, I think, I think I was so endeared to you just because you were, um, you know, cause I, I mean, I think ostensibly, you know, people like you and myself and many other people in the music industry that get attracted to weirdo subcultures, you know, we feel like we feel lucky to participate and be in the quote unquote music business, but we never truly feel like, you know, Oh, like, like you said, you know, climbing the social or the corporate ladder and like, Oh, I can't wait to work at Capitol records and be a part of this like massive marketing plan or whatever. Like it just felt like there was obviously a disconnect between those two uh, types of people. And that's probably why, like I said, I identified with you so much. Well, that's awesome. I'm uh, it's funny to think back that at this point that was pushing probably 20 years, at least 15. So yeah. Time flies, man. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, but I, I mean, I guess to that to that point, just the uh, the idea of uh, following your own sort of uh, instincts, as it were, to uh, you know just kind of work in the music business, and like it, it you know, your uh, it seemed like your ambitions never outweighed the idea of why you got into music in the first place. You know, like just again that sort of like you know, corporate mogul, like, Oh, you know, I'll be, I'll be running EVR and like crushing all these other record labels or whatever. Like that was never clearly the person that you were. No, that's true. And that's definitely not my vibe for sure. So uh, I'm glad that, uh, that you picked up on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then it was, I think too, because your, um, you know, you, people's reputations obviously precede them within the music industry, whether, you know, you fall into a bucket of people that you should trust and try to work with or people that you should kind of maybe, you know, steer clear for them or, you know, keep a wary eye on. And, uh, I think that, you know, because of who you were as a person and kind of how you conducted your business that, um, you know, it's that sort of, uh, I guess paved the way for you being like, oh yes, like, you know, Dan and EBR are a trustworthy sort of like company to work with. Um, is that, I mean, I, I realize it's, it's hard to maybe answer that question because, you know, I'm asking you to self-reflect, but like, you know, do generically speaking, do you kind of see that sort of reflected in certain ways back towards you? I think so. Like, you know, I, I think that's with everything that I've done or everything that we've done at the label collectively, you know, I think it's always been, you know, never, never like, told a band something that they just wanted to hear. Like, I feel like the approach has always been very transparent and honest and that works with some bands and that won't work with others. But I think, you know, we've built this little Island of the people that kind of get our vibe and get the culture. Like it's worked really well, but it's not the perfect fit for everybody. You know, if that makes any sense, but I definitely feel like that's a, uh, definitely a big piece of what we've done. Sure. Well, and to your point too, like, because there's been so many different, um, 
I guess, kind of iterations of what uh, Equal Vision has done from a musical perspective, you know, different people get attracted to the label for different reasons. And so I'm sure kind of navigating, you know, the, the sort of core constant is there where it's like, regardless of what sort of, you know, whether you're a hardcore band or a prog band or an indie rock band or whatever, the the core components are there to be like, well, yeah, we just like to promote good music that is obviously of a DIY variety. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I think I think everything that we've done, because there have just been many different waves, especially if you look back, you know, over the whole lifespan of it. Um, but I think there's also like kind of like this artistic thread through it that you know, regardless of if you're a metal band or a hardcore band or an indie band, like I'd like to hope that that there's like this artistic meaning that is behind all of it too. Where it's not just like this cookie cutter average randomness, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Right. You're not just trying to capitalize on, you know, whatever trend is happening with that particular, you know, window of music. It's like, yeah, you might put out music that is adjacent or, you know, firmly in a trend, but you're, that's not the, uh, that's not the core uh, component of why you are working with that band or that artist. No, exactly. And I think like, I think the cool thing with some of the stuff we've done, not that we ever followed a trend, but I also think we like shifted trends and created trends, which was, kind of like the most mind-blowing thing to see like when we actually something that we're doing doing and working on hand in hand is like shifting culture is kind of crazy and uh that's what kept me in this as well the whole way yeah no for sure uh we'll, we'll hit on more of that a little bit later but I, I would like to reflect on you as a human being because you know there Thanks, man. there there are very few times in which you can you know kind of dig into a person's past in a real way um and so you know i always like to use these as an opportunity to do is do things like that um you know so we're i don't know actually where you I, were you born in, i know you were born and raised in the east coast but where in particular i grew up in connecticut like in a small town like east of Hartford, so kind of like the middle of nowhere. Got it, got it. And your what, what was your family structure like as far as the, you know, people in the house, like, you know, brothers and sisters, mom and dad? Yeah, mom and dad in the house, and I had two younger sisters. I was the oldest. You, you paved the way. Paved the way, and it's crazy because I don't think, you know, my sisters and I, like, are all so different. It is kind of wild. To, to take a step back and, and look at what each of us have kind of done and the people we've ended up turning into. It's kind of weird. Right. <laughs> what did your, uh, what did your parents do as far as like a career and, you know, kind of bringing bread to the table? My dad um, worked for a, a company that like made like airplane engines and did support on, on the engines that they made. And then my mom uh, was a kindergarten teacher before she started having a family and then ended up uh, after that, she worked for like a preschool and then also uh, ended up kind of getting like a more corporate like office job after we were kind of all grown up. Got it. Got it. And so you would maybe classify your upbringing as definitely sort of, you know, nuclear family, idyllic in many respects, like, you know, living in a small town, but close enough, you know, to where you did have access to, I guess, a more, um, you know, vibrant downtown. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's accurate. Yeah, like definitely pretty uh, pretty middle of the road. Sure, and th- this may be me playing a little uh, armchair psychologist on you, but the you know you've always struck me. I mean, especially too with just kind of your. Um, who you are as a person, you know, never one to be like, Hey, I'm the center of attention. Um, you know, look at me, I'm Mr. Dan Sanshaw. Like you've obviously never struck me as such. Uh, I'm going to presume that was kind of who you were as a kid too, um, traveling through the world and trying to, you know, kind of, uh, figure out who you were. Yeah. I mean, completely. I mean, as a kid, I was super shy, you know, like that was something like I remember being, very young and feeling that way. And, you know, as I grew up, like definitely never tried to like step too far out. Like I'm, I'm pretty reserved, like to be under the radar. Got it. And were you, uh, you know, were you into sports? Were you into, you know, like what were you attracted to initially, like, you know, in elementary school and maybe going into junior high? I mean, when I was a kid, I played, Played all sorts of sports. Was huge in the baseball. Loved it, um, you know, especially as a kid. Um, you know, all through grade school and middle school, like that was like what you know. We were either playing organized baseball or playing wiffle ball in the yard or doing something related to it all the time. And after that, um, kind of just it wasn't as fun anymore. Then I found music and fell in love with music after that. So that was kind of like a weird crossroads. It was funny when you, uh, you know, uh, the the collision of, you know, sports and independent music now, it's like, you know, there's no shame in, you know, liking basketball or football and listening to, you know, hardcore punk. But, you know, there were many years where that was obviously uh, incongruent with one another. And like, you you really kind of had to, you know, uh, not only from like a passion perspective, but sometimes you were like, Oh yeah, like you know, maybe in high school, it's like yeah, I'm still on the baseball team, but like I like to go to shows in the weekend, and those worlds don't really combine. Yeah, especially when I don't know, like I know we're probably of a similar age. Um, like it was just different back then, and not that you had to pick one or the other. It was just like, you know, growing up, like the the baseball team, you know, those kids were not going to go see Snapcase on the weekend. You know, like it was definitely there's a line in the fans, like it's two different worlds. Yeah, for sure. It's like, um, and I think it was more so from the, uh, I guess the mental, the jock mentality side of things where, you know, not everybody that plays a sport is, you know, evil and going to beat you up. Like once that line started to, you know, not only blur, but go away where it's like, Oh yeah, these people that play these sports, like they're not all out to get you. <laughs> it's like, it's like, Oh, okay. Like I, I can't like, both can coexist. They're not mutually exclusive to one another. Yeah. And it took me a long time to figure that out too. Like, you know, as I got older, and I don't want to skip ahead. I don't want to get you off track, but as I got older, you know, like music was what I was doing for my career. Music was what I was doing for fun. Music is what we all talked about, like with my friends, like it was just everything. And I got to a point where I was like, basically burning out and you know like I was in my late 20s or I think I hit 30 and I actually ended up kind of going back to sports and I was like I need something else to kind of like balance this out because I can't do this 24 7 
right. anymore if I want to be creative and productive. And I think I kind of came to terms that at that point, that the two things kind of lived together on some level as a fan, at least, but, um, sure. An interesting realization. No, that's, that was actually something I was going to pick out a little bit later. Uh, but it's apropos to bring up now where the idea of working with something that you're passionate about, um, you know, is, is somewhat of a, you know, uh, a blessing and a curse where, you know, the blessing is that, you know, you're waking up and getting to work with cool bands and putting out records. And like, of course it's a job and there's stressful moments for it. Um, but you're, I definitely remember myself once I started to enter the industry and kind of pieces of advice that people gave me where it's like, well, you know, if you are going to put this much effort into something that you care about, like you could become jaded, you know, you can, you know, see the uh, underbelly of what it is that the music industry is and how people treat each other or whatever, you know, all the pitfalls that, you know, get kind of laid out. Um, and so it's interesting that you, you said you kind of ran into that wall yourself or it's like, oh, there needs to be kind of, uh, you know, a balance. Like, so would you say that, I guess, the burnout that you felt from that was directly correlated to that? Or was that just kind of like, I'm working too hard, I need to, you know, also kind of find balance in my life? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it, it took a minute to realize that what I was doing, like, just wasn't going to be sustainable if I wanted to keep doing it forever. Like, and it's, you know, I... I believe in a strong work ethic and I believe in doing everything you can, but I also feel like you have to like flip the switches in your brain to make sure that you, uh, you don't go crazy and lose your mind too. So, sure. you know, I think that was something that I had to figure out. Right. Right. Yeah. To find that balance. Um, and so, you know, kind of going back to what you were saying when you were, you know, uh, growing up and kind of figuring out who you were, um, did you care about school? Like, was that something that you, um, you know, was something that I guess you were uh, applying yourself to, or was it just something that you were kind of uh, coasting by on? I feel like, I mean, what are, what kind of age bracket are we looking at? Like, we're, we're about, like, like, like maybe junior high, high school where, you know, grades kind of started to mean something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny cause you know, I feel like through that, you know, through those ages, you know, I could go to school and try a little and get a B, and that was completely fine with me. Um, my sister would stay up all night and literally, like, give herself heart palpitations because she had to get an A and everything, and I just, like, couldn't wrap my head around that concept. So, you know, I wouldn't call myself a slacker, but I feel like in, in that point in school, like, I could, I, I felt like I knew what I could do to get that B without driving myself crazy. So I feel like maybe I was more of a coaster. Sure. Like you knew, I mean, it, it is an important uh, lesson to learn as you're going through, you know, junior high and high school where some people just know how to play the quote unquote game, you know, like, and be able to, like you said, kind of be like, okay, if I put X amount of effort into it, I will receive this grade. Or if I put X plus Y effort, then maybe I might get a better grade, but you know, I don't really care about that right now. So I'll just do X. Yeah. But I will say that that changed as I got older and went to college. That's when things got a little more, uh, I guess, serious for you <laughs> from a school perspective. Yeah. Like I, you know, I went to college and I, you know, was kind of uh, picked a major where I was, 
thinking about trying to like become an architect or do, you know, some kind of like construction minded work and did that for a year and realized it just wasn't my thing and decided to like switch majors and switch schools. And when I did that, I ended up losing a bunch of credits. So I basically ended up having to go for an extra semester. And at that point I was like, all right, well now that I'm here and I know what I want to do, um, I'm going to do this as hard as I can do it. Got it. And at that point I wanted to come home. I wanted the perfect GPA and I wanted to kind of do everything the best I could. Cause that felt like more real at that point. Sure. That makes sense. And what, uh, what college did you go to? Uh, I went, I started at central Connecticut and then I ended up transferring to Eastern Connecticut. So ECSU. Got it. Got it. Um, and so, you know, it's obviously, like you said, in, in high school, you, that's kind of, or, you know, junior high, that's when you started to get keyed into music and stuff like that. How did it even get introduced to you in the first place? Cause you know, sometimes it happens, you know, uh, via your siblings, if you have an older sibling or what have you, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, people of a certain age, you know, skateboarding is definitely a huge uh, touch point, but you know, how did you get kind of backed into, uh, understanding what, you know, not only just what was on the radio, but then, you know, more independent minded stuff came into your radar. I think it was interesting not to date myself, but you know, when I was like a junior or senior in high school, it was like when grunge exploded and the chili peppers exploded. And there was just a lot of, it's an interesting time, especially to look back at that. Um, But I think like the group of friends I was in, like I, I didn't really have a click in high school per se, but I was friends with the, the kids that skated. I was friends with a little, you know, people from like kind of every pocket. Um, but I think through that, you know, I think the gateway of kind of getting into like indie stuff was, you know, people were listening to stuff like Mighty Mighty Boss Tones or Sick of It All and just kind of like all of it mixed together. And I didn't realize like that there was like this whole other scene happening um until a little bit later because it was just kind of all blended it was like somebody would bring in a tape and they check this out and um it's just a different experience versus like whatever mtv was trying to like cram down our throats sure. at that point yeah no it's i mean it's cool when you're able to um understand like i i think so many people unlock the idea of you know music like their own uh, personal opinion of music once you understand that there is a economy away from what is you know typically presented to you via you know television or kind of your mainstream radio you know once bands get played that kind of are like huh that's a little weird that's a little left of center that's when you're just like oh so there are other bands like it doesn't need to be you know just whatever like picking on new kids in the block or something like that you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, and obviously being from Connecticut, there clearly is a ton of connection with, you know, hardcore and, uh, a lot of the, um, you know, uh, the connection to the New York scene and, you know, revelation and like all of that sort of stuff. So did that loom large? Like once you started to kind of dive into, um, you know, more punk and hardcore adjacent stuff? I mean, totally. I mean, when we were kids, like at the end of high school, like anything Rev put out, we bought and, 
you know, I, it took me a minute to realize, you know, we, you could have judge and you could have burn. And then on the other hand, we had sense field and far side and realizing that it was all kind of like different angles through that same lens, you know, like East coast versus West coast. And it was just interesting, but I feel like that, that age, especially like really opened up my eyes to like what, what the scene was and like kind of like all the different like sub pieces of it. Sure. Well, it's cool that you were able to see that there were different facets, not only, you know, from a record label, but then, you know, geographically as well, where (laughs) once you start to understand that it's like, Oh yeah, there are some different things that are being pumped out of, uh, certain areas of the country that you know might not like because yeah it's just you saying Sensefield like I cannot I cannot even imagine Sensefield existing from being like hey we're Sensefield from New York City like it was just it, that like break, makes my brain hurt or something you know no totally and I think the regional differences really play into that too because there's so many people I meet now you know as we're reminiscing over whatever we grew up on where just regionally like there's bands that you know, even like a veil, like a veil would come play by us. You know, they'd play Connecticut, they'd play Providence in Boston. Like I would see a veil like two or three times a year. And then I run into other people that are like, no, nah, I never, never heard of that band, never saw them. And I'm like, what? How, how is that possible? Right. Um, but, but obviously that's pre-internet or very early days of internet, you know? So I think just, the way things spread is just a different experience versus the way it is now. For sure. Yeah. There's definitely, uh, you know, the, the geography of a band and the makeup of the members of that band are far less important. Um, not saying that it's better or worse, but like you could easily, uh, pick out what a band kind of sounds like just purely based, you know, if I told you or it's like, Oh yeah, Louisville hardcore, you'd be like, Oh yeah. They maybe sound like Endpoint a little bit or something. You know, like you'd be able to just kind of mm-hmm. automatically assume their influences, um, in a way that, you know, you just can't simply do right now. No, I think that's very accurate. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, once you started to kind of get exposed to the idea of like going to shows and stuff like that, uh, you know, I mean, clearly you were, uh, you know, entranced by that, but like, you know, what were some of the early shows that like you went to that like really opened your eyes in regards to, um, you know, these, uh, not only the, the visceralness of, you know, these bands playing right in front of you, but, you know, you definitely follow the road of, you know, like, you know, vegetarianism and veganism and straight edge and like all of these things, um, you know, kind of colliding. Uh, what were some of those, uh, I, I guess, foundational experiences for you? I mean, I think the, the real eye-opening thing, like, you know, I had seen other, you know, things that were a little more, you know, alternative or punk leaning, like in smaller clubs, like throughout high school. But um, I remember, I think the real turning point was there was a, a tour, it was like winter, probably like the end of 93, where Snapcase or Crisis and Strife were on tour. And I remember going to that, like we have this incredible DIY spot near where I grew up. It was in Wyndham, Connecticut called Studio 158. And I remember going to that show there. And that was like the the first experience I had of kind of like really seeing behind the curtain of that world and that community. And um, 
I think that was one of one of the turning points, if not the turning point for me. Like I just felt like I finally like fit into something where people were more like minded. And sure. that was uh kind of awesome considering like I never really felt like part of part of anything, you know, kind of prior to that. You've heard me wax poetic about band merch for forever. So why have you not used the code PC one hundred words on rockabilia.com? Rockabilia is the most legit place to buy all of the merch that you could possibly shake a stick at. They've got over 600,000 items in stock ready for you to purchase. You can get tank tops, you can get t-shirts, whatever it is you need, they have. It's all officially licensed, above the board stuff. They pay out the bands, great independent business. They ship stuff directly to you very quickly. I can't say enough positive things about all of the stuff that I have personally purchased through Rockabilia, and I know you will enjoy it too. So like I said, use the code PC100WORDS. That gets you 15% off your order, and you will look that much cooler buying stuff on you know a monthly basis. Be like, you know what? Here's my monthly Rockabilia treat. Boom. There we go. 15% off the order. Thank you very much, 100 Words or Less podcast, uh, and I hope to receive that email soon, Okay. Anyways, thank you very much, Rockabilia, for your support. And again, PC 100 words, 15% off. Would you say that, I guess, that feeling of not feeling connected to, you know, anything else was that, because um, like you said, you kind of knew a bunch of different people in high school and could kind of maybe go through, uh, you know, different social cliques, but all of them clearly didn't feel like home until you found this community? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Like, and you know, I don't want to make it sound like I didn't have friends or I was a loner, but I, you know, I felt like a lot of the stuff I was into, you know, it wasn't like I had like a, a group of friends that were all into the same thing. And so I find, you know, kind of fell into hardcore and then realized like, all right, well now we have a place to go and we didn't think we had anywhere to go. Um, and then it just, you realize that there's other people there that, you know, might have the, the same viewpoints as you, which was kind of cool. Yeah, that's amazing. And as you started to get into this, um, you know, how did your parents react to, you know, you starting to bring these things that they were, were probably very foreign to them, not only, you know, loud music and yelling and screaming and stuff like that, but, you know, some of the, uh, you know, ideas that permeate within the subculture? I think when I got in, my parents were super supportive of, of anything that I was trying to do, you know, as long as I wasn't like hurting myself. Um, you know, my, they, my, they were super cool. Um, you know, I think at first when I came home and I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm vegetarian now. Like, I don't know if they just thought that was a phase that, uh, would wear off, but still hasn't. So I'm kind of, you're here. Yeah. <laughs> And still doing that. Um, and that's like a cornerstone of, of one of the things I believe in, which I think is awesome. Um, they are super supportive. They didn't judge. Um, I think they, I think they were happy knowing that there was something that I felt passionate about. Um, I don't know if any of us thought that there would actually be a way to kind of, work and live in that world and support a family through it either. But I think that was kind of like a cool byproduct as well. Sure. No, that's really cool. I mean, I think the parents that, uh, you know, look at their role as a, as uh, you know, a, a person that is helping a younger person navigate the world, 
is ultimately just trying to find that thing that they're passionate about and being able to support it, whatever that may mean. So it's really cool because generationally speaking, um, you know, the moment that you bring, you know, as a child, you bring something home to your parents that they understand, uh, you know, sometimes a gut reaction is to simply just be like, what are you doing? No, you can't do that. Like, what, is, what, what is that? What do you mean you go to shows? Like what, what is that a concert or yeah. is it a show? Like, you know, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Um, and so, you know, like you mentioned, you know, when you went to college, you obviously took it a little bit more seriously and kind of, you know, went down a, uh, you know, a circuitous path in regards to what your sort of career would look like. Um, but you, once you kind of honed down on the idea that like, I want to work in music, whatever that may mean, um, you know, how were, I guess, how were you trying to sort of execute that? I mean, when I was in college, I did, uh, I worked at the radio station. I was a music director. So I got to kind of know, you know, all the reps at the different labels and the independent marketing companies and stuff. Um, and I didn't really know how any of it worked. Um, but I, you know, I kind of, tried to learn whatever I could through that. Um, from there, I also like interned at a label and did whatever they needed me to do. I volunteered at the beginning of like street teaming. Like I was on every street team I could be on handing out stuff, like all kinds of weird shit in weird places. Um, and, uh, you know, I kind of just did anything I could in industry wise, just to kind of meet people and learn what I could. Got it. And so you, um, yeah, I mean this, the street team thing is such a, you know, foreign concept for most people. I mean, street teams sort of exist, you know, digitally now, but, uh, how crucial that was for record labels of all shapes and sizes, independent all the way up to majors. Um, and just the, the hustle that it obviously took to not only participate in a street team, but then actually like be quote unquote good at it and be like a good rep for your area. Um, I'm sure you learned a lot as you were kind of doing that. Yeah, it was interesting because at that point, it was like a foreign concept. It was like, you know, I don't know if people just, I don't know what they were doing previous to that, but I feel like I was at the right place at the right time where I remember being a college rep for one of the majors and I would come home and I'd be a pallet of promo CDs just sitting in my living room. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do with these? <laughs> right. Um, but the concept of like that hand-to-hand in-person marketing, I think was just part of the shift of like kind of getting more so out of the radio and MTV being the only thing that was going to end up fueling the band. Yeah, for sure. I mean, because it definitely felt very, um, you know, like this was how you uh, were helping build a band on a grassroots community level. It's like, you know, being able to see a band do well in certain, you know, areas of the country could almost directly be related to how much the street team hustled for that particular market or whatever. And it was, uh, it's such, you know, like I said, it's a foreign concept now, but you know, it'd be, it'd be the same way as like, Oh wow, your streams are popping off in this area. It's just like, Oh, well, it sounds like people are spreading the word in, you know, Hoboken, New Jersey or whatever. That's funny that it is a foreign concept now, but I think that's uh, I think that's accurate. But uh, definitely, uh, you know, I think that spirit is still there. That that word of mouth, hand to hand, I think can still be in there. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they're, you know, cause so many people look at the way that, uh, you know, uh, artificial intelligence and recommendation engines and all these things that, uh, you know, push the technology and music discovery forward. But, you know, at the end of the day, I don't care how much that gets iterated. You're always going to trust your friend probably a little bit more like, you know, when you're bouncing ideas off one another, it's like, oh yeah, I'm going to listen to that band. And, you know, of course, maybe I'll listen to my, you know, Spotify recommendation playlist, but when your friend says something is cool, like, oh yeah, I'll check it out. No, totally. I think that, uh, I think that remains true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you remember some of the, I guess, early records that you worked from a street team perspective that you, um, you know, I, I guess maybe felt a connection with or were excited about promoting? Cause you know, not every record you probably quote unquote worked, uh, you know, maybe spoke to you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there was some stuff that I wasn't the biggest fan of because at, at that point, like I said, I was kind of plugged in. I was doing stuff for A&M, which I don't even think exists anymore. Um, I was doing stuff for Columbia. I got to work a clutch record um, when they put out Elephant Riders. And at that point, I definitely, I mean, I still love that band. Um, but being able to work that on that level was uh was definitely cool and it, it had a definitely a different passion for me where I could go out and I'm putting music in people's hands and believed in it a hundred percent versus some of the other things that maybe I didn't. Um but that's the one that probably sticks out the most because I was a fan before that and it was kind of cool to be able to help work that next phase of the band, even though that is definitely not the best record they've made. But uh yeah but still, still cool to be a part of it. Yeah, totally. I mean, that, I think the reason I ask that is because it is exciting. Like when, you know, no matter what area of the music industry you start to work in, you know, when you get that, that project or two that you already a fan of before, like it, that's when it feels kind of like, you know, not only bigger than yourself, but it's just like, wait, I have a hand at this. Like, this is so cool. Yeah. I remember that too. Cause working on that, they, that summer they went on tour and the tour was Slayer headlining uh, clutch was direct and system of down opened. And I remember like getting to go, I saw that tour like three times and got to go, you know, had like certain access at the show. And I just remember thinking like, this is the coolest thing ever. Yeah, I've made it. Right? I'm here to see, I, I get to see Slayer for free because I worked on clutch like this, it gets no better. Like, okay. you know, just like thinking that was awesome. Right. I, I just ba- I backdoored into this, and this is so wild <laughs> that I get to like you know ride the coattails of this. You know that it's crazy how things change, but at that moment, that was definitely the coolest thing. I mean, don't get me wrong; I would go back in the time machine and do that again in a second right now. <laughs> right. Right. You know, right. See, see that show again. Yeah. No, that's really cool. Um, and so then uh, I, I don't even know actually how you got, uh, you know, connected with uh, EVR in the first place, um, you know, because you've I mean, you've been there now for tw- what is it, 20 some odd years. Like, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I started uh, started in 98. Yeah. So that's uh, yeah, that that's quite quite a quite a few years. So, yeah, you 20, 21 years. That's uh, that's nice. Did you get a, uh, you know, commemorative plaque for your 20th year? <laughs> <laughs> No, I think that's I think that's in the mail. It hasn't come yet. Yeah. 
<laughs> I know it at Century Media. I got a plaque for five years, so I f- and I felt very much like uh, you know I, I got a uh, wow. Here's my uh, you know retirement watch or whatever, and I was like, oh wow, five years of wow. dedicated. I know we gave out plaque. I, I mean, I th- I think that era of music, the music industry is long gone, but yeah, I still have that plaque somewhere. But um, but anyway, so how, how did you even get introduced to EBR in the first place? I mean, I uh, it was kind of I think the first. Uh, connection was through radio, you know, so I think at that point we were, I was dealing uh, with the label when anything was getting worked to radio at my station. And then after that, they were working on building a street team. I remember signing up for the street team and um, that was uh, another layer to it. So I was kind of like plugged in friendly with, uh, with Ian who worked there is still part of the company. Um, and I ended up uh, hanging out with him either at a CMJ or some other music um, or some other radio convention, what maybe like the McGaffey thing they used to do oh, yeah. for CMJ. And I remember like meeting up with him and we went, there was a, some sort of showcase going on. We went to see these. We hung out that afternoon and it was just kind of cool and um, didn't really think anything of it. And I remember like talking to him like a few weeks later and at that point, I had, you know, I had graduated college, had done all the interning, had done all the street rep stuff, all the college rep stuff, and interviewed for a bunch of jobs. And I thought, like, I was just shocked. Like, I probably interviewed, like, at four different places, and I just, nothing lined up, which I was kind of surprised at. And I remember talking to him, just casually telling him, like, I was looking, and, um, you know, things weren't lining up for me. And he's like, I think we need somebody here. Would you be interested in interviewing here? And I was like, where are you? Like, upstate New York. I'm like, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll interview, you know, and he, uh, you line that up for me. So that was kind of like, you know, I think it was a byproduct of everything I had done up to that point, um, which was kind of interesting to see it line up like that. Right. And so do you, you went up there and I presumed interview with uh, Steve. Interviewed with Steve. And in all honesty, we talked about Project Kate and Shift probably <laughs> for the majority of it. I love it. Um, you know, he, you know, he is an interesting, um, you know, definitely a visionary with, uh, with what he's built. Um, but definitely, uh, it was an interesting interview. I've never gone through anything else quite like that. It was very casual. He didn't ask me a ton of questions about what I had learned and what I was trying to do. It was more just like a feeling out kind of process, I think. Sure. Get Probably the vibe. The best way to look back at it. Yeah. Got yeah. a vibe. Yeah, for sure. And um, I remember leaving and not knowing what to think about what had just happened. I was like, uh, because it definitely was a different experience than any any of the other labels I had interviewed with. So when it uh, when it actually worked out, I was pleasantly surprised. I would say. Sure. Well, and especially too, because it's not like you know, and I'm sure you've experienced this in a few different aspects. No one that starts something from a uh, you know entrepreneurial perspective perspective. Uh, is like, man, I can't wait to be like a boss. Like, I can't wait to do that. And so then like, you know, all of these byproducts of, you know, you running a business where it's just like, 
oh, like do an interview. It's just like, well, I don't know. Like, I, what, I'm going to ask you, you know, where you've envisioned yourself in five years. It's like, no, I want to make sure that like you're a reasonable human being and you know enough about equal vision to, you know, be a threat or whatever. <laughs> like, either there isn't this like formal uh, HR process that they need that you need to go through. Yeah, it's just kind of interesting when you get interviewed and someone says to you, like, you seem like a smart guy. You went to college. Why would you want to work here? Like, <laughs> how do you answer that? Right. You're like, um, because I like equal vision. Um, I want to work in the music industry, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it's like, you know, it's one of those things I, I've been on my toes for all these years. Yeah, no, I love, I love that. Um, and so were you initially hired from a sort of like a project management standpoint? Like, you know, kind of, I mean, obviously an independent label, you wear 5 million different hats. You may have one title, but you do a bunch of different things. Uh, but was that the kind of the vision when you stepped on board? I mean, when I came in, I think technically I was the office assistant and I just kind of helped you know at that point there was like four guys in a in a garage at that point um but i would basically came in and like assisted and you know each department or each person like with whatever they needed got it so yeah you were you were the uh you know the swiss army knife where it's like oh i need uh i need to do a mail out let's uh, hey dan can you help with this hey dan can you help with this yep. Got it. Yes, I was a mailing guy. I was the guy that threw shirts and boxes. I would pull orders if we needed them. Um, but from there, it kind of grew into, hey, you want to do the street team now? Hey, figure out how to get records in the mall. Like just, And it's just kind of, you know, whatever I got thrown at me, I ended up finding a way to make it work and having it succeed. And that just kind of snowballed from there. Sure, sure. Um, which, you know, I mean, realistically is how, uh, you know, the businesses of that size get built where it's like, you, you're not, you're not good at any one thing. You're okay at a bunch of stuff, you know, <laughs> you're, you're the, whatever, jack of all trades, master of none scenario. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess that is accurate, you know, especially at that time where yep. it was like, you know, a bunch of hardcore kids, you know, trying to figure out how to sell records, you know, how to get people turned on on the stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, you know, as you started to kind of matriculate through equal vision and start to, you know, get a little more comfortable with the idea of like working in the music business and stuff like that, um, you know, for you, this may be a big question, but, you know, when did the job, I guess, feel, you know, real beyond just the kind of, you know, you showing up for the first day and, you know, moving from Connecticut to upstate New York and stuff like that. When did it feel real where it was like, oh, wow, like, you know, this thing that I worked on, and it doesn't even need to be, like, commercially successful or whatever, but it's just like, oh, wow, like, this is this is cool that we are really able to accomplish this or whatever. What comes to your mind when I uh, kind of frame it like that? I mean, I think it was interesting because when I started, I was doing a little bit of everything and, you know, obviously learning by doing, which I'm still a, a huge believer in, even with, uh, with our team now. Um, but I think, you know, for the first year, year and a half, you know, kind of learning how it all fit together and kind of just absorbing what I could and, and seeing the bands grow and, you know, really getting a chance to work on Saves the Day through being cool and learning through that process of like how to properly put out a record, you know, because at that point, you know, previous to that, you know, from a distribution standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, 
you know, there were a lot of kind of breaks in the chain as far as like what we were doing. But I feel like that was the first time that we kind of like made like a larger scale plan and had learned how to like make the pieces fit together and actually have more records in stores and, and have the street team working and have radio working and have the touring plot and like kind of all of it together. And I feel like being able to like work on that and watch that kind of like grow and then explode was the moment that I realized like, okay, like we're onto something here and this is, this is what I want to do. Yeah. And I don't want to stop doing it. Right. 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 I want to figure out, what can, uh, you know, what can I, what I can do to hold on to this and, you know, be able to push forward in the future. No, that's really cool. Um, you know, clearly when you are, you know, doing all these things that you were doing, uh, you know, at the beginning and learning all these different traits and stuff like that, you make a ton of mistakes. Like you make, um, you know, uh, and you, you still make mistakes and I make mistakes and, you know, we, we all just try to, you know, minimize them in regards to, you know, how big the mistakes are. But I'm sure that there were some, you know, illustrative mistakes that you made uh, towards the beginning of your tenure or maybe even, you know, a couple of years ago at EBR that you were like, oh, yeah, that's a big learning, cur- you know, a, a big learning uh, uh, process that I went through in regards to that. And it doesn't even need to be like, you know, oh, we didn't sell as many records as, you know, we previously set out to do because that happens to kind of everybody. Um, but, you know, when I when I say when I say those mistakes that you made at the beginning, um, you know, what kind of comes to mind from that perspective? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I've learned a lot um, along the way. And I think it's funny because I think with a case like Saves the Day, you know, I'm a kid, you know, and I just felt like, you know, we line that up perfectly that you take that marketing plan and you apply it to another band, you'd get the same result. And I learned very quickly that, you know, all of these things kind of like live in their own universe and you need to build like this perfect tornado around it to make it happen. And you can't force it if it's not there. So I, I realized that there's not just like, you know, a one size fits all marketing plan that every band you run through the same plan is going to blow up. Um, which I'm glad I learned that then. Um, and I also, the first couple of bands I signed, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I was given the leeway to do it, um, but there's stuff I signed where I thought it was going to be great, and then in hindsight, I realized that there's a million red flags over all of it. And I think, you know, getting a chance to like roll my sleeves up and work on that stuff and learn, you know, what to look for, and also to trust instinct along the way. When, you know, if there is something that jumps out at you that feels like a red flag, it probably is. And that's something to like consider sure. moving forward. Um, but, uh, but yeah, a lot of learning through, you know, like you said, like even now, like there's something new every week that happens where, um, you know, I think that's part of the process. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I like that. Um, just that notion that the templatized nature, cause you know, when you are working with stuff that is creative and putting out records, it sometimes is easy to kind of, roll with certain motions where it's like, okay, this sort of band should receive this marketing treatment or whatever, you know? And there are times where it's like, oh no, like maybe we need to think about it a little bit differently. Um, or we need to, you know, maybe scale back here, but push back, you know, push more here. 
And the only way that, like you said, the only way that you know how to do it is either through experience um, or being able to recognize this as its own individual project. And this is something that is going to, you know, take on its own life, regardless of what, you know, marketing dollars you throw at it or whatever. No, completely. I think that's a good lesson. Absolutely. Um, you know, something I would be remiss if I did not bring this up because this was a huge learning experience for me when, uh, you know, we were talking uh, from a professional perspective to, you know, work with uh, my old band Taken. And, you, you know, you flew out to San Diego and, you know, we hung out and uh, you saw us play. Uh, I think it was, yeah, it was with The Beautiful Mistake, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but, yeah, so you flew out because you wanted to, you know, kind of get a vibe of who we were and, you know, see us play and stuff like that. And it was, uh, it was such an interesting experience for me because, uh, you know, at that time I was working at a record label as well. So like I did what you did as well, where (laughs) you would, you know, scout bands and check them out and do all that sort of stuff. And so it was interesting kind of having that role reversed on me. And then, you know, I, like, I I remember being like, oh, we sucked. (laughs) Like we weren't very good. And like, you know, the, the cards or the chips didn't fall where, you know, uh, taking an EVR would work together. But it was uh, it was such an interesting experience because I think like w- you and I both probably knew it like when we uh, connected after our like when we played, you know, <laughs> it was just kind of like, well, thanks for coming out, Dan. <laughs> like, I really did feel that like, dude, I appreciate you coming out here. I'm sorry. This wasn't maybe what you thought it was going to be. Like, I just have so many um, interesting uh, memories of that. And, and I also didn't look at you as being like, oh, man, Dan isn't going to sign us. What a jerk. Like, I. I don't know. It was just such an interesting experience. And I'm sure like, I mean, like we've joked around on previous phone conversations, you kind of had, you know, uh, you look back that experience as being informative for you as well. No, totally. And that was something. And I think that is, you know, any, every, I meet so many people in this industry that want to do A&R. They're like, I want to sign bands. And I'm like, I don't know if you do because there are so many layers to this that, are uncomfortable you know so i remember with your band especially i think i had a demo with maybe two or three new songs on it yep that really really good like obviously i liked it so much that we you know we started talking we forged a relationship and that next step was going to be to see it you know and i still that's something i still do now like i won't sign a band unless i be able to see a show and be able to like kind of like get that in-person experience. And obviously I don't remember what venue that was in. I remember it was San Diego. Yeah. It was the, the venue. Just, the, was- the venue no longer exists. It was called the scene. And I, <laughs> I, I, the reason I remember it too, is because I like, you know, at that time we were talking to a few different labels, but I remember, I remember specifically in my head, not mentioning anything to the rest of the guys in the band until after we played um, because I, it's like, I didn't want the quote unquote, you know, Oh, here's our, our, the pressure of the label or whatever. And it was like, it didn't, it, it probably, well, I can tell you, it didn't matter. Like, you know, we didn't perform as well as we maybe typically do, but yeah, it, the scene in San Diego and they don't do shows anymore there, but yeah. Was that like in a strip mall or something? Like, it, was. it was like a it, weird space. It was, it was totally, they only did shows there for maybe two years or something like that. But it was like, it was kind of like, it just felt like a big, uh, kind of warehouse, you know, where they decided to like put a stage up and I mean, it was like 800, maybe thousand cap venue or something. It was pretty big, but, um, yeah, they just didn't know what they were doing with it to keep it going. (laughs) But 
but it was one of those things, you know, and I was still at that point, I'm only a few years in to like being like an A&R person. So, you know, being able to, you have to kind of separate the relationship that you have on that personal level with like being able to take a step back and, and look at it and be like, you know, is this something that, that we think we can do the right job for and that is going to be worth running through our team. And I just remember wanting to do that so bad because I really liked you. Like, I think we had chatted quite a bit before then. And I just remember watching the show and granted like that venue was weird and what maybe wasn't a huge turnout. And I just remember watching it and I was like, the new songs just didn't translate for me the way I hoped they would. And I just remember like kind of like walking out back and like in my gut, I just knew that it wasn't going to be the right fit. Right. And then figuring out the way to tell you that where I didn't feel like I let you down, um, you know, was a delicate thing. But I also think like, you know, you have to be honest if you're going to do this. Like there's no point in not being transparent at that point. So that was an interesting thing. And it's funny to think that, you know, through that experience and we're both still in this game is kind of interesting. And I think it's, uh, amazing to to wrap your head around that too yeah oh absolutely because i i definitely navigated those waters as well when you sign bands that you have this personal relationship with but then you have this business relationship and you know i always remember having to draw that firm line where it's like there will be times where i you know me ray as a as a person that works for this label will have to tell you something tough like i can't give you tour support yeah. or i can't do this but that does not mean that I do not like you as a person, or I think that your band is bad or whatever. You know, like, and sometimes it's so hard to separate a person's ego. Um, and then I don't mean that in a negative way, but like the, you know, that you can't feel like it's a direct, uh, you know, affront to who you are as a person. It's like, what do you mean? You can't give me tour support. You're my friend. And it's like, well, I, my hands are tied. It sucks. Or yeah. But trying to navigate that yeah. is really hard. Like you said, just being able to, um, still have these relationships with people, but then also be able to like, you know, operate on a business level too. Totally. But I'd like to think, you know, you know, I, there's a lot of people I've met over the years and I haven't signed every band I've met, but in this world, I think that, you know, people, people keep popping up. And I think if you deal with, with things in the most professional manner you can, like, I think that's the best way to do it. And I think it, it you know, keeps coming back like that too. Yeah, no, that's true. Right. Yeah. If you, as long as you, you know, do your best and you, like you said, you're transparent and you're honest or whatever. Yeah. People, you know, they, they might, you know, have their feelings hurt at the time or whatever, but they'll understand, you know, once there's some perspective to be had, it's like, oh yeah. Like, you know, Dan said no to me because of this. And like, I get it, you know, maybe at the time I was mad at him, but like, I understand why this happened or whatever. Um, the uh, a few last things I want to hit on before I let you go was the, um, you know, the notion that, uh, you know, you've always been, you know, a behind the scenes guy, like you've never, you know, put yourself out there publicly in many respects, uh, as far as like, okay, everybody, you know, look at me, I'm Dan Sanshaw. I, I, you know, work for equal vision. I'm really cool because I signed these bands. Um, not saying that you would ever say that about yourself, but, um, 
there, you know, there has been a shift in your perspective. I know, obviously, because we're speaking on this podcast, <laughs> that you have been willing to kind of, you know, open yourself up and telling your story and telling kind of, you know, how your involvement with Equal Vision, how meaningful it is to you. Um, you know, what kind of prompted that change in you as a person to be like, oh, you know, like, it's not bad uh, if I do, you know, kind of uh, put the spotlight myself occasionally without, you know, sacrificing the fact that, you know, I care about these bands and, you know, they're clearly the most important part of this whole component. Well, that's exactly it. Cause you know, for years, every like request I got to do for any kind of interview, I would just turn down or shift to a band. Um, I think that I saw enough people in this industry that were trying to kind of use these vehicles to like self promote, like just felt, didn't feel sincere and you know like like you touched on like the goal has always been band first like that's always been the principle that we are working with but i do think like over the last couple years i've come to the realization you know i'm i'm a little older and you know everybody that would reach out and want to talk you know, I'm kind of at the point now where I'm like, well, if people want to hear what I have to say, and as long as it feels like the right situation for me, then I think that's something that I have to do because I have to remember, you know, there's a lot of people out there that don't know all the origins of the label. They don't know the things that we've done or that I've done. And if there's a way to kind of like connect the dots for someone now that maybe wasn't there 10 years ago, then... I'm uh, I'm stoked to do that um, because I think uh, you know if I take a step back and and look at what I've done, like I've definitely touched a lot of cool things that have you know brought happiness to people and shifted culture and, and done all sorts of stuff. So that's why I'm here and I'm I'm stoked to do this. And sure, you know, yeah, I'm uh, I'm glad it worked out. Yeah, for sure. You're ch- I get that because it is you know, it is uncomfortable sometimes to, um, you know, look at yourself as the subject of something. Um, but it, it, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head when you're saying that providing a context, uh, you know, in the age that we live in now and the age that we will continue to live in where sometimes people don't have either the patience or the wherewithal to be able to put these things together. Sometimes if you are able to do that for them in a manner that is, you know, digestible, then it's even more meaningful to be like, Oh, okay. I get why I get why this person's, uh, you know, journey has led to this, this, uh, you know, not conclusion, but along this path. And, uh, I think that that's, you know, that's, that's commendable of you to be able to be like, all right, I need to, you know, maybe, uh, go against my instincts on this one. (laughs) And uh, I'm learning, I'm doing my best. (laughs) <laughs> That's fun. Um, there, uh, you know, and, and all during this time too, like you were, you know, building a family and, um, you know, setting your roots, obviously in upstate New York and stuff like that. Um, you know, I, as you were kind of uh, doing that and understanding how you can be as a professional and the sort of like work life balance and everything like that. Um, you know, how has that, uh, I, I guess kind of changed you, especially, you know, maybe for, through the lens of, of being a father, um, you know, how, how have you been able to kind of, you know, navigate those tricky waters of being like, well, I need to be present for my child, but you know, at the same time, I also, you know, have these obligations from a work perspective. I mean, I, I think, uh, especially as, 
you know, as I became a father and as I've gotten older, you know, I try to like carve out enough time for each thing I need to do. Um, and I realized like, you know, right when my son was born, I like took myself off the road. I wasn't traveling as much or really at all. And I just feel like that wasn't, it wasn't healthy for the work. So I think finding the balance of, of being able to go out and do what you need to do as efficiently as you can, but also spend as much time as you can at home um, is really important. And I think it's been interesting with everything that's been going on lately. Um, you know, having the time at home and being grounded has been kind of nice, um, you know, from that family perspective. But I am also looking forward to at some point kind of like getting back to a little more normalcy where I can go out and uh, you know, see our bands and, and meet people and do my thing as well. So it's interesting to kind of how it fits together now sure sure absolutely um and the last thing i want to hit on was the uh you know it kind of is along the lines of like you know when you felt like the job was real like you know we're talking about the saves a day record and stuff like that um you know uh, clearly like there has been a lot of different musical evolutions within equal vision and you know those shifts like you're talking about in culture and the way that um you know bands resonate uh in ways that you you know probably never initially uh maybe anticipated i mean obviously coheed and cambria is a huge one it's like i remember you know first listening to that record and just being like who the hell is going to like this record this is crazy and then obviously they you know they are what they are now um you know are are, are there any other uh you know signposts that uh you know kind of congeal in your head when i mentioned that of the kind of like wow like and it doesn't even have to be like a huge record experience but it can be kind of like Oh yeah, this was a very interesting, uh, you know, thing that we noticed uh, that set the groundwork for these records that we put out later. I realize it's kind of a big question. I apologize, but you know, I just I, I find those experiences very interesting from people. I think it's interesting to kind of look because I think there's just waves. Because I think, you know, you talked about Coheed, and I don't think Coheed could have happened if Days of Day didn't happen before it, and then. After Coheed, we had, you know, the wave with Circa and Follow Troy and Chiodos and Armor for Sleep. And that wouldn't have happened without Coheed. So it's interesting to kind of like look at some of those markers where, you know, we had these different things that were at that right place at the right time. Um, you know, and even like a band like Portugal the Man that I worked with you know, where they were coming from, they were kind of like on their own island. Like they were trying to reimagine the way a band should record and tour. Um, and I think they were finding their way at the same time. We were trying to figure out how to make it all work. And I think that was like another like pivotal moment of, you know, being able to like collaborate with them. And I didn't envision them turning into what they did. Like I obviously would hope and dream that for them. Um, but being able to see what they ended up doing after we worked together, um, is completely mind blowing. So when I look back, there's a lot of different mile markers where I can kind of, you know, kind of reflect and just think like, wow, like that changed, you know, we thought we had it figured out and then it completely changed. And there was a new wave that 
you know, we took what we learned before and applied it moving forward and it just kept changing and evolving. Sure. Well, I mean, and that, and I think that, you know, really roots itself in the fact that you, uh, the label still exists, uh, for the evolutions that you've gone through, but there are so much, so much connective tissue that you can easily, uh, you know, tie back to why, you know, you're putting out records in the first place, you know, whether it's the fact that you are still able to work with so many friends that are doing musical projects, you know, well into their forties and fifties, you know, and still be putting out their records, but then also be putting out, you know, a brand new band full of, you know, 18 to 24 year olds. It's like that, um, you know, not every label can exist within that, that context, but, you know, EVR definitely still, uh, you know, frankly prides itself on that in, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like I, you know, especially now, you know, I think, you know, my viewpoint is there's certain things that kind of, get presented where, you know, like, I think you were just kind of referencing a band like Be Well, which has like a bunch of old friends in it. Um, and, you know, when our paths crossed, we hung out and I just realized, you know, this doesn't feel right being anywhere else. And they kind of, they definitely felt the same. So to be able to do that with old friends, but then also, you know, kind of also have like the, the newer, younger crop of bands coming in too is what makes it exciting for me because you know like I mentioned before like I'm not getting any younger and if I'm going to get the call in the middle of the night on something or need that inspiration to get out of bed in the morning like I think you kind of have to you know figure out how those things fit together yeah no that's really I, I just think it's it's real fun to be able to uh, play in that uh, ecosystem to be able to introduce people to not only the historical context of the label, but then, you know, be able to put, you know, yeah, a band like Be Well against, you know, Hail the Sun, where it's just like they couldn't be more musically different or, you know, come from different scenes. But there's enough, again, connective tissue to be able to draw the straight line between those two bands, even though, you know, uh, on the surface, there might not be any similarities whatsoever. Yeah, I think that's a good point, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, way to go, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, man. Yeah, no problem. Um, but yeah, honestly, I really appreciate you walking me through all this, Dan. This has been, uh, super enjoyable and, uh, yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for wanting to do this after, you know, trying to schedule this for a little bit. <laughs> hey, I'm glad that we did it, you know, plan it for lines and, uh, you know, this was awesome and it was, uh, we definitely touched on some stuff that, uh, haven't thought about in a minute. Yep. There was Dan and that was a great discussion. Don't you agree? I mean, if you're listening this far, I would imagine you agree. But thank you very much, Dan, for coming on the show and, uh, yeah, just being willing to go on this podcast journey with me. Next week, we have a great show. I mean, every week is great, but, you know, it's just I got to get you pumped, right? Great, exciting, all those words, all those adjectives. Describe this person, and it's Russ Rankin from Good Riddance. I have wanted him on the show for quite some time was able to make it happen and uh it's it we just had a great discussion he uh it, it's actually funny because i i bring up I'm like you're kind of a serious dude and uh you know we we talk we do a little armchair psychology on russ and he was totally willing in game and it was a it was a really fun conversation so that's what we got next week please visit saveourstages.com and please be safe everybody <laughs>